I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on January 9th, 2022. Episode 49, An Emergency or a Power Grab. No doubt exists that a government has authority to act in times of emergency. Who would question the president's authority, without consultation with Congress or any formal declaration of war, to call our armed forces to fight as the bombings at Pearl Harbor were underway? Or the ability of our government to shut down its borders when threats from abroad are imminent? There are real emergencies. The American Heritage Dictionary provides the following definitions for the term emergency. A serious situation or occurrence that happens unexpectedly and demands immediate action or a condition of urgent need for action or assistance. Similarly, Merriam-Webster defines an emergency as an unforeseen combination of circumstances or the resulting state that calls for immediate action. The definitions of the related but not identical term crisis provide that that term means a crucial or decisive point or situation, especially a difficult or unstable situation involving an impending change or a difficult or dangerous situation that needs serious attention. The key takeaways when defining these terms are that they require some urgency and immediate action. But how do these words come into play in today's political environment? It seems that no day goes by without cries of an emergency or crisis. But are any of these modern-day issues truly emergencies? Do they call for treatment as a crisis? And if not, why label them that way? And can an emergency actually exist if the condition at issue lasts for days, months, years, or longer? Can an emergency be permanent? It seems that if you look at the list of priorities on the left's agenda, you will find more than one seemingly permanent or at least long-lived emergency. In no area has the left continued to attempt to create an emergency or a crisis than when it comes to climate change. And with each claim that the sky is falling, They are proven wrong, but instead of admitting the lack of need for action, they simply pivot to recharacterize the threat. Since the 1960s, the left has continued to posit apocalyptic claims about the coming environmental crisis. To understand the falsity behind the claims, 
it only takes a walk down history lane, or memory lane, though the left has a very short-term memory, to see how the crisis at hand is never addressed, but just changes as needed by those who desire and prefer certain policies that can only be justified by the drastic measures needed for an emergency that will knowingly cause harm while not clearly providing any good. In the late 1960s, these claimed scientists said that a famine was inevitable. Indeed, it was claimed in a Salt Lake Tribune opinion piece already too late to avoid a long and painful global famine. Of course, that famine never occurred, and it was not because of any notable action taken to grow or produce more food or control the population. It was because this was never a crisis. It was never impending, and it was never an emergency. So when that didn't work as a means of seizing control over the food and other industries, the doomsday profits turned to pollution and acid rain. Indeed, as mentioned in an earlier episode, it was Dr. Paul Ehrlich, the king of environmental disaster predictions, who claimed in 1969 that just 20 years later we will likely all disappear in a cloud of blue steam. That also did not happen. So if we aren't going to starve to death and we aren't going to disappear in a cloud of blue steam, it must be the man-created coming ice age that will get us. At least, that was what was claimed in 1970 in a Boston Globe article. It was our air pollution that was going to throw us into the next ice age, and only three things could stop this impending tragedy. Population control, a less wasteful standard of living, and a major technological breakthrough in the way man consumes the Earth's resources. You see, the solution is always a change in the way of our, li- our way of life, the way we obtain and use natural resources. And not just any natural resource or any pollution that's causing all these ills. It was, as it is today, fossil fuels. Indeed, in 1971, a scientist working with NASA and Columbia University claimed that in the next 50 years, the fine dust man constantly puts into the atmosphere by fossil fuel burning could screen out so much sunlight that the average temperature could drop by 6 degrees. And if sustained over several years at this rate, within 5 to 10 years, such temperature decrease could be sufficient to trigger an ice age. You don't say. You mean the same fossil fuels now claimed to be warming the Earth to dangerous levels were going to put us into an ice age just several decades ago? Why do Democrats and the left hate fossil fuels? In part, this anti-fossil fuel positioning comes from the left's attaching itself to environmentalism and radicalism in general starting in the 1960s. And today, it just makes sense that the party and those who support it view as the, indis- the enemy an industry made up predominantly of hard-working blue-collar workers and an industry that allows America to be independent from the rest of the global economy when it comes to energy. In addition to the radical positions that have a stranglehold on today's left, The desire to be more beholden to authority outside of America's borders is also in line with the Democratic Party's view of the United States' position in the world, a position often described as less desirable than many other countries touted as better examples of society by the the Democratic Party. Fossil fuel is not so much the enemy as a symptom of a patriotic independence that runs counter to today's left's view of the world and of the United States. The attempt to scare us into accepting urgent action on climate change based on chicken little the sky is falling predictions that have proven false through the decades is merely a way to try to limit the influence of those who seek true independence for America. 
If you look at the claimed emergencies through the years, it becomes more apparent than ever that the goal is to take actions that undercut and run counter to America's first principles and to the Constitution itself. Just a few more examples of false claims of a climate crisis include a 1989 Associated Press article that claimed, quote, a senior UN environmental official says entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if the global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000, end quote. And of course, former Vice President Al Gore's claim in 2006 that unless drastic measures to reduce greenhouse gases are taken within the next 10 years, the world will reach a point of no return. Yet here we sit in 2022, still claiming a climate crisis. It is just that seemingly the day of our doom has again been pushed into the future. Climate change is real, and it may deserve consideration in terms of actions we take as a population to address it. But decades have shown it is not an emergency. The Earth's climate is changing very, very slowly. And it is not just the change in the Earth's temperature that poses an imminent threat to us all. Today's assertions that our nation is systemically racist are just another method in the attempt to use a fabricated crisis to take action that would be deemed unacceptable under normal circumstances. So a manufactured crisis serves one purpose, the purpose of pushing many to accept the unacceptable. Systemic racism. We hear this phrase daily now, that our very systems, those constructed by our founders, and through which we have achieved amazing feats from abolishing slavery to instituting equal rights for women and minorities, and to providing an escape to freedom for so many around the world, is inherently racist is a far-fetched enough, that's a far-fetched enough claim, but when it now is a purported emergency that essentially demands destruction of our very foundations, it should be obvious that it is not accurate. Declared a public health emergency in 2020, it is systemic racism that is the reason given for so many of the power grabs by our city, state, and federal officials. Despite not being able to point to one actual part of our system that allows racism, the shouts that the entire system suffers from this affliction fueled demands to defund the police, to abolish college entrance exams, and to provide COVID-19 relief funds only to minority-owned businesses in certain industries. Just a short time ago, before this claimed emergency, all of these proposals would have been laughed out of the public debate. But when one claims these changes are demanded by the systemic racism emergency, it becomes more difficult to debate the substantive issue in any real way. It is an emergency, and thus careful thought and deliberation are luxuries that cannot be allowed. We must act quickly. Consider the Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act of 2021 that found its way through Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock into the latest COVID relief package. This law, a clear violation of the Equal Protection Clause and possibly other constitutional provisions, provides for funds to address, quote, systemic racism in the Department of Agriculture and for that department to provide additional funds to what the Act calls socially disadvantaged farmers. To be socially disadvantaged, the farmer must belong to a group that has suffered racial or ethnic prejudice and lists as the groups that have so suffered American Indians, Alaskan Natives, Asians, Blacks, African Americans, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders, Hispanics, and women. And another bill sponsored by Senator Cory Booker provides other funds only for certain groups as laid out in his Justice for Black Farmers Act. There is no requirement in any of these legislative provisions that the farmer receiving these emergency benefits show any actual social disadvantage or any need different from those farmers who do not fall within the definitions of the socially disadvantaged. But note the language used. 
Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act. What is the emergency faced by some farmers in the time of COVID that is not faced by them all? We are now a far cry from Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of a world where we are all judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. We find ourselves in the opposite bizarre world where it is suddenly not only acceptable but required that we consider another's color because otherwise we are not addressing this emergency. In a resolution in the city of Minneapolis, the heart of much of the origins of recent claims this is that systemic racism is a public health emergency following the officer-involved death of George Floyd, the statements made are both alarming and the kind of statements that would only be accepted if the populace was first convinced it is actually facing some sort of real emergency. Here are just some excerpts from a resolution passed by the City Council of Minneapolis in July 2020. Whereas racism has various forms, including historical, individual, systemic, and that has not only continued to present day, but has been institutionalized to ensure the concentration of material, power, and resources into the hands of white-bodied individuals. And, whereas white supremacy is a political, economic, and cultural system in which whites overwhelmingly control power and material resources, conscious and unconscious ideas of white superiority and entitlement across a broad array of institutions and social settings. And, Whereas racism in all its forms causes persistent discrimination and disparate outcomes in many areas of life, including housing, education, health, employment, public safety, and criminal justice, exacerbated further by the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. Based on these and other claimed wrongs, the resolution then goes on. It provides services and funds specifically to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This kind of clear racist categorization for public services would be unacceptable but for the message being sold that there is an actual emergency or crisis of systemic racism. No proof is needed. Only claims of black harm and the shouts that there's an emergency are required to move forward with proposals that in the absence of an emergency would be, and still are, clearly unconstitutional, un-American, and unlawful. Once public officials started labeling this claimed systemic racism as an emergency or a crisis, others jumped on board. Cornell University's Cornell Health site website states the following. Positioning the long-standing issue of racism as a public health crisis is not just a matter of semantics. Framing racism as a public health issue compels organizations and governmental units across the country to address the crisis in the broad, systemic ways that other threats to public health have been addressed over time. These can include strategic initiatives and policies, practices, enforcement, education, and support services. And make no mistake, this public health emergency is being used in education to incorporate classroom teachings to students as young as elementary school, that they are defined by their race, that some of them are naturally born oppressors and others are naturally born victims. Whether called critical race theory or new history, these teachings are what is dangerous. They may be the emergency. It is hard to understand how something that is claimed to occur by birth, based on your color, can now, all of a sudden, be an emergency, especially when our actual systems, which until actions taken to confront this claimed crisis, were, as the founders originally envisioned and strived for them to be, colorblind, treating all of us the same under the law. If there is any emergency or crisis, it is the damage being done to America and its foundational principle of equality that all men are created equal and are to be treated equally under the law. But that first principle is under attack, and it's not just based on claimed racist systems or the ever-changing climate crisis. 
The pandemic has opened the door to exponentially more government overreach in the name of battling an emergency. And this time, the enemy is an invisible virus that government action was never going to be able to defeat. But that didn't stop the government from grabbing power whenever it could in the name of combating this new enemy. The permanent pandemic, as many are now calling it, is not an emergency, at least not anymore. It is true that as COVID-19 first made its appearance in humans and made its way to our shores and borders, when little was understood about who was most at risk, how it was transmitted, or how to treat those who contracted it, there was a public emergency, or at least a crisis in need of some government information gathering and considered urgent action. Now, however, two years into this pandemic, two things are quite clear. First, we now have an understanding how to treat those infected and who is most at risk, as well as the actual risk of fatality from the virus. And second, our government officials at all levels, at least many of them, and particularly on the left, are drunk with the power the emergency provided. Who would have thought you could tell Americans to stay in their homes, shut their businesses, mask their faces, and otherwise completely alter their way of life, and they would comply? Government and health officials can certainly be expected to have made some errors and to have misunderstood how the virus operates when first encountering it and the threat it posed. The problem is that as the science surrounding the virus became better understood, many of our government officials refused to back down on their dictates to restrict our freedoms. They refused to accept any new information, the real science as it evolved. The problem is that when a government claims an emergency and uses fear to scare its people into compliance, It is hard to return to any concept of normal, as fear is a difficult emotion to control, and it's a difficult emotion to let go. Fear is what is used to take control in an emergency quite often, especially manufactured emergencies, like those already discussed involving climate change or systemic racism. When it comes to COVID-19, fear of this unknown virus was a large motivating factor for the average citizen to simply do what he was told. But it is not American to do so without asking questions, and without asking why the government's ever-changing positions about the virus appeared less driven by science and more by what actions will allow it to take more control of us. But no longer do the government's actions or the guidance it provides for our behavior seem cloaked in an actual effort to curb the spread of the virus. From segregating the vaccinated and unvaccinated, despite more and more information suggesting the vaccines do work to curb serious disease but do not stop transmission, such that the decision to get vaccinated is now a more personal one, likely only to affect the person making it, to mailing abortion pills and election ballots. If you actually look at the policy changes being made, it becomes more obvious that those changes conveniently mirror the left-wing policy preferences of the Democratic Party allowing its members to do things they would never have gotten through in a normal legislative or policy vetting process. If an emergency is claimed, action must be taken, and that action, it seems, should not be questioned, because we simply cannot take the time to question it when faced with such an emergency. In a May 2020 article in Foreign Policy magazine, a number of individuals wrote to discuss the effect of the pandemic on government. The opening sentence of this article should concern everyone. It reads... We are all statists now. The article goes on to discuss the changes in government as a result of the pandemic, and though pointing out what the authors view as some good results, the real danger of allowing expanded government in times of emergency is how to wrangle that power back from your government when the emergency is ended. As the introduction to this article explains, there is a dark side too. 
governments have assumed new powers to trace, track, and control. Some of them have already abused these powers, and it is entirely conceivable that they may never give them back. As some of the experts gathered for this article explained, in the post-coronavirus world, Big Brother will be watching. And perhaps contributor to this discussion and author Robert D. Kaplan explained the situation best when he wrote the following. Like other life-transforming crises such as World War II, the coronavirus pandemic will likely ignite an urge for the protective embrace of big government. After three decades of wealth creation on a historically unprecedented scale, we may be on the cusp of an unprecedented period of wealth redistribution in the form of higher taxes to fund an expansion of health care and other services. The new kinds of surveillance of individuals with which some countries have successfully battled the pandemic may be a harbinger of the future. Privacy will increasingly become an issue in this new age of overbearing government. And so will government debt, which is already mushrooming out of all proportion. With the pandemic heating up the U.S.-China rivalry, calls for increased defense spending loom just over the horizon. But how will we pay for it all? That will constitute the real debate. A bigger government with a larger role for experts on public health and other subjects may be on its way, along with an intensified populist backlash against it. With the pandemic response in the United States and many other countries rather uncoordinated, there will be a tendency to strengthen the role of national governments in the post-coronavirus world. As a result, our lives may soon become more regulated than ever. Kaplan is not wrong, and what is most concerning is that once government takes power in the name of addressing an emergency, it rarely, if ever, gives it back. As several of the Supreme Court justices suggested during oral arguments this week on the Biden administration's vaccine mandate regulation, one crucial question is when does the emergency end? And that is often the problem with emergencies. Once declared, who decides when it is over? And if it is those in charge, what incentive do they have to do so when doing so reduces their power and authority? There were hints at Americans' willingness in more recent days to alter their valued liberty, to give up control to their government following September 11th, when it became more accepted in society to allow the government to take actions it previously would not have been able to take to ensure our safety. It seems we now look to the government for safety from everything, including from life and liberty itself. But why are we so willing to allow government power grabs to address each claimed crisis while never demanding the release of that power when the crisis is ended? Because those who control the crisis often control the information, and they never let a crisis, real or created, end. Misinformation, disinformation, a president who's a threat to democracy— these are things we are hearing more and more from our mainstream media as the ruling elite learns how easy it may actually be to increase power by characterizing any incident or situation or political debate as an emergency or crisis. Misinformation and disinformation. These terms are now part of daily speech, especially among members of the media and various government officials. A quick internet search identified the following headlines. The Misinformation Crisis. The World Weekly. Inside the Misinformation Wars, New York Times. Milwaukee County wants misinformation declared a health crisis, MSN. Confronting the global crisis of misinformation, GeekWire, and more. But is misinformation a crisis? Is it even new? And how is it now that we are more accepting of a world where the government, not the people, 
Decide what is and what is not misinformation or what information should be shared in the first place. It seems now both sides simply label any story or position with which they disagree as misinformation. There are now at least two, if not more, realities. But how did we, as a society, accept a media, for example, that doesn't provide any objective options? To be fair, at the time of our founding, media and publishers were not objective, but you knew their biases. Today, no one admits or sees his own bias. He merely labels another opinion misinformation, or worse. The worst comes from in the form of characterizing political enemies, not as part of a Republican democracy, but as an emergency themselves. As early as December 2016, if not before, many news outlets aired news pieces or published articles asking or claiming that Donald Trump was a threat to democracy. A duly elected president of the United States, before even taking office or making a single policy decision, was being characterized as a threat, an emergency situation. One definition of threat is an indication of impending danger or harm. So here we are again in an urgent situation that the left could use to call for drastic measures. The New York Times, NPR, New York Magazine, CNN, and others all claimed by December 2016, before Donald Trump had ever been sworn into office, that he was likely a threat to democracy or to America itself. This theme, that there was a critical threat to our very existence in the form of Donald Trump, has carried through to the characterization of the protesters and rioters on January 6th. What no one appears willing to admit, and which is a sign of our country's strength and the non-emergent character of, this, of these bad acts, is that there was no real emergency except the one that was put down almost immediately on January 6th. Donald Trump served four years, and nothing fell, nothing crumbled, and America is nearly evenly split on whether his presidency was good or bad for the country, similar to any past president. And January 6th, despite the theater we saw from the left this past week, did not have us teetering on the brink of collapse. It was an embarrassment. It was an awful set of incidents. But on the same day as this claimed insurrection, the new president was confirmed as the proper winner of the election by bipartisan action on Capitol Hill. And those taking illegal actions on the grounds of the Capitol were repelled and many arrested and charged criminally. This didn't go on for days. It went on for hours and then the emergency was over. There wasn't a continuing emergency. But if the left can make you believe that there is a continuing emergency, then they can continue to put forward an agenda that cries, as with climate change, systemic racism, and COVID-19, that the country must change, and it must change immediately on a scale never before seen in our nation. The truth of the matter is that misinformation, disinformation, the presidency of Donald Trump, the criminal activity on January 6th are all situations that the emergent character was handled quickly and early if it was an emergency at all. And the emergency no longer continues. The truth of the matter is the only emergency this January 6th, as opposed to last while our elected officials spent their time making speeches about an ongoing but invisible threat to democracy, was those stranded on highways in actual emergencies as snow fell along I-95 and elsewhere. You see, these real emergencies are easy to identify and easy to understand when they are over, but they are also most often handled by individuals and not the government. It is the new fervor for ill-described ongoing emergencies with no beginning, no end, and no real solution that should be rebuked at every turn as a threat to our democracy. As always, thank you for listening. 
An emergency can, temporarily, enhance a government's proper authority to act quickly to address an imminent threat unfolding without time for deliberation and proper procedures. But once that emergency ends, any power used or created to address it that doesn't normally already exist in our government should end as well. And where issues that have been lingering for decades begin to be called emergencies only to support unprecedented government action in a way that is counter to our limited government and our rights as a people, it is only if we, the people, push back that there is any hope of reigning in the authority the current ruling elite would like to instill in themselves. Next week, I will discuss a key problem with today's bureaucracy, the reliance on government experts to make policy decisions, and as a means of shutting down any real debate about the relevant issues. Just like the advent of expert witnesses in jury trials took away some of the common-sense review of evidence a jury was intended to offer to the justice system, today's large and complicated bureaucracy has shown it does not operate in a state of constant question, debate, and testing of theories, any real science or expertise, but in an echo chamber of anti-science except or parish culture that serves neither the agencies that employ these experts nor the people. Until then, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2022.